Well, the text that we'll be looking at this morning is Isaiah chapter 43, verses 14 to 21. So if you're going to follow along in your Bible, that's where to turn, Isaiah 43, verses 14 to 21. I love that song. I love any Orthodox uh, Trinitarian song as that one is. And you may have noticed, if you're familiar with it, that we've uh, taken the liberty to modify the lyrics just a tad. And that is that, that, that originally this song says, leaving your spirit. Um, but we believe that, and I'm sure the author of the song believe this too, but all the works of God are inseparable among Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, the Father and the Son are working even in the Spirit's work among his people. So it is not as though God merely deposited his Spirit into the world, but he is actively working in the sending of his Spirit, even which began at Pentecost, but is continuing to this day. So just a little, little note on the lyrics there, but a wonderful song. Um, I'm going to read our text uh, and then pray for God's blessing on our time to start things off. So, again, Isaiah 43, verses 14 to 21. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot arise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Let's pray. Father, as your people in Christ, we do indeed exist for your praise. You have crafted us as a master workman. And we exist as the recipients of your salvation. And we live in Christ and in the power of your spirit for your praise. And so we pray that we would respond to your word with trust and with praise. We pray that you would work mightily in our midst through your scriptures and prepare our hearts to be like the good soil that received the seed of the word in readiness and produced abundant fruit. We so need your spirit to work to give us not only eyes, but sight, and not only ears, but true hearing. And I pray for my own proclamation that your spirit would fill me and give me clarity and power and faithfulness to your scriptures to the end that you would be exalted through Christ among us. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, folks, we're at that time of year again. It's July 4th. At least tomorrow it will be. And this is the time when we celebrate the anniversary of our nation's birth, so to speak, if we could mark that as the Declaration of Independence. The 4th of July is a date that makes us nostalgic for great moments in the past. The most important is, of course, the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. It was actually July 2nd, but that it was passed, but it was signed, I think, on the 4th. 
But that's the event we're thinking about on the 4th of July, that great moment in our past. But we also remember other events, like the uh, Battle of Fort McHenry, when Francis Scott Key observed that star-spangled banner waving in the sky by the light of British exploding ordnance. And the flag's endurance through the long night of assault inspired Key to write what we now call our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. Even I think the reason we do fireworks on 4th of July is to simulate what happened at Fort McHenry when that Star-Spangled Banner was lit up by the bombs and the rockets. And so it goes, any nation or any cohesive group of people will have its key moments, its crucial memories of the past. These are moments that usually would be associated with our origin, but maybe not always our origin stories. But these moments give us a great deal of our understanding of our identity. It explains to us what makes us us. And it explains to us how we fit into the world. And without doubt, Old Testament Israel's 4th of July moment was the exodus from Egypt. And especially, if we could put a finer point on it, the dramatic Red Sea crossing in Exodus chapter 14. This is a great work of God that that consistently echoes throughout the pages of the Old Testament afterward. It forms the beginning of Israel's nationhood, God bringing them out of Egypt. It's one of the barest and boldest displays of God's saving power. And in linking it to the Passover feast, as God does there in Exodus, it becomes memorialized by ritual in Israel's religious and cultural practice. This is a key moment in their story as a nation. We're going to see in our text the Lord evoking the Exodus. And we might ask, well, what does that have to do with where we are in Isaiah? After all, here in chapter 43, we're still in the shadow of the gloomy prediction of exile that God had made back in chapter 39, verses 6 to 7. Now, it's interesting that today's text is the first time Babylon gets mentioned six, since 39, verses 6 and 7. But the coming disaster of exile has loomed in the background all along. This whole section of Isaiah is, what is God telling his people in view of the exile he has just promised? And what God does in our text with the Exodus will be fascinating and instructive. But it's not just history. It has great value for us today. And the value for us is in providing us important training for how to look both backward and forward in time to consider how God's past acts of redemption shape our future hope. That's what God's doing with Israel, and that's what God's doing with us today. Training us on how to look backward and forward to train our hope. So today, to put it in a nutshell, the main point from our text that I'll be bringing out is this. Glorify God for a new and greater exodus. Glorify God for a new and greater exodus. Now, all the elements in that little statement we'll unpack in three movements. We'll first hear about the old exodus, which is the pattern of God's saving act. And then we'll hear about a new exodus, which surpasses the old in glory. And finally, we'll hear about how we respond to the glory of God revealed in the exodus. So that's that's our kind of outline. Old exodus, 
new exodus response. Okay? So first, let's look at the pattern of the old exodus. The pattern of the old exodus. And Isaiah brings out two aspects of the old exodus pattern of salvation. The first aspect of this pattern is the captors are destroyed. The captors are destroyed. I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. It says, Thus says the Lord who makes a way, for, a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. This is where the Lord describes the old exodus as the pattern for what he's going to do in the future. Verse 16, we'll look at in a moment more specifically, it's about his positive work, bringing Israel safely through the Red Sea. But verse 17, what we're looking at right now, is his negative work, which is bringing down the walls of water crashing on top of Egypt, Israel's enemies who were pursuing them. So in the Exodus, one essential thing that God did to save his people was to destroy the enemies who held them captive. It began with a series of crushing plagues as you read Exodus and culminated in this Red Sea swallowing up Israel's enemies, Pharaoh's armies. Now every good story has a plot. You'd be hard pressed to write a good story without a plot. There would be no story at all. And one thing that every plot needs is a conflict. No conflict, no story. And in countless stories that humans have told each other over the centuries, one of the patterns or motifs of story, one of the plot uh, lines that comes up over and over again is the quest to destroy an enemy and pull off a rescue. Destroy the enemy, pull off a rescue. Slay the dragon and rescue the damsel in distress. Now, I don't bring this up to cast doubt on the historicity of the Exodus. It absolutely happened. But I think it's a reflection of how God's pattern of working in history resonates with something in our natural sense of how a rescue ought to happen. There's something deeply appealing to us. And I think that's why we keep telling stories in this same pattern. The enemy, the villain, the beast, the monster must be vanquished. And those he oppressed must be brought back to safety and thriving to attain a happy ending. And this is the story that God told in the events of the first exodus. God's work of judgment against his enemies, if you look at verse 17, is very interesting. It contrasts with how he treats his people starkly. It's actually a way that he cares for his people. In verse 17, it describes what he does to Pharaoh and his warriors. It says, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Now, this was three years ago, back when we were in chapter 42, verse 3, hearing about the ministry of the servant, the servant the Lord would send on his behalf, in whom his soul delights, who carries out his work on the earth, establishing justice. And verse 3 says, one beautiful feature of the servant's work is how he will treat with gentleness and patience the weak, how he'll nurture and inflame whatever small spark of spiritual life they have. And it says in verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. There's this gentle tenderness toward his own. But now, against his enemies, against Egypt, the Lord is in a different mode. He snuffs them out like a burning wick. 
So the Lord is tender to the lowly and weak, but fierce and ruthless to the hardened oppressors. As the Bible says elsewhere, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there's no one more proud than Pharaoh, as you read the Exodus. No one more dead set against the Lord. No one more self-glorifying, self-deifying, presenting himself as a rival to God than Pharaoh. And so God crushed him. So that's the first aspect of the Exodus pattern. The second is the people liberated. The people are liberated. And as I said, this is verse 16, the positive work that he did for his people. Have the Lord opened up the Red Sea and made a path of dry land for his people to pass through. This is the second essential aspect of salvation. Making a way for God to bring his people to come near to him. Now, there are different ways we can study geography. I like geography. If you're map people, you like looking at maps. There's not like one master map that has everything you could ever want to see, is there? There's all these different layers to look at in space. Different ways of looking at at, 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 spatially at the earth. You might look at physical geography, focusing on features like mountains and valleys and glaciers and deserts. You might alternatively look at political geography, and then you're looking at things like state and national boundaries, capitals, ports, cities, and the rest. There's many other ways you could look at geography, many other layers. But as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the Bible speaks of Israel's promised land using a kind of theological geography. There's a theological geography in the way that the land is used. It represents not just a certain acreage on planet Earth, but theologically, it's the place of fellowship and blessing under the Lord's kingly reign. As we said, the promised land is a restored Garden of Eden in the Bible's storyline. It's the place where God is rolling back the curse of sin and reconnecting heaven and earth. That's why there's a temple. That's exactly what the temple is. It is the connection point between heaven and earth. So when Israel gets kicked out in the exile, it's not just like moving to a new town for a job. You might ask, what's so wrong with relocating? It is rejection from the very presence of God's dwelling. And this means that in the first exodus, when the Lord brought Israel through the sea on the way to the land, he's drawing them near to his side to bless them. That's what the point of bringing them out of Egypt through the sea on toward the land is. He's bringing them to himself. You see, it's after getting them through that ordeal that he established the covenant and gave, him, gave them his good and gracious laws. So the pattern of the first exodus is this. The captors are destroyed by God's mighty hand. And the people are liberated to come near to God's presence and blessing. This pattern will be important as we consider the Lord's promise of a new exodus. And that brings us then to the second main heading, the glory of the new exodus. The glory of the new exodus. In verses 14 and also 19 to 20, God describes the return from exile that is ahead for Israel. Now, we've heard him in previous weeks, if you've been with us going through Isaiah, promising this deliverance in various ways. The new development today is how he casts it in terms of the old exodus in Israel's past. And there's a lot of insight to draw from that comparison. So once again, we'll look at two aspects here. Two aspects of the new exodus. The first one is 
the pattern is repeated. First, the pattern is repeated. And by now, I hope you know the pattern. It's destroy the enemy, rescue the people. The Lord promises future deliverance in terms that recall and echo the way he worked his past deliverance. Of course, the exodus is what's in view. It's as though God is presenting to Israel his resume to persuade them of his track record and how it shows him fully able to save them now. Saying that remember who I am who make these promises to you. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. This is depicting how God is going to send Cyrus, the Persian king, who he now just says, I will send uh, to Babylon. Later on, even here in Isaiah, he's going to name Cyrus ahead of time to defeat the mighty Babylonians who are also called the Chaldeans, those who have defeated and exiled Israel. And they flee the battle like fugitives because they're defeated. This is a picture of defeat and scattering. The word that's translated rejoice at the end of verse 14, it means to cry out. And it usually means to cry out in joy, but sometimes it means to cry out in fear or anguish. And I agree with the commentators who take it that way, meaning that the, the Chaldeans are crying out as they, they're, they're fleeing and crying out, trying to get to the ships to save them, that they would have the, the, the shipping on the Euphrates River they use for commerce. At any rate, the picture is one of shameful defeat and scattering. That's what will become of Babylon. Just as in the Exodus, the Lord will redeem his people by destroying the powers that enslave them. Likewise, the Exodus pattern will also be repeated in the way that God makes a way for his people to pass through to liberation, where once again they can come to a place of his blessing and fellowship. That's what verses 19 and 20 are about. Israel returning from exile, which is the counterpart to how they walk through the Red Sea in the old Exodus. He says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. You see the poetic symmetry that in verse 16, he made a way in the sea. In verse 19, he makes a way in the wilderness. But also, in both verses 19 and 20, he changes the picture a little bit. It's no longer a way in the wilderness, but it's a river through the desert. This is, this is interesting. In the Red Sea, we have the ocean, which, and this is sound, sound obvious, is wet. <laughs> the ocean's a very wet place. And what does God do? He cuts a dry strand right through the ocean so that they can have what they need a way through. What is he going to do in the desert? He's going to cut a strand of water to provide what they need. There's a symmetry therein, the fittingness and the parallel with what he's done in the past. And the idea is both of making a way for them so that they can come to him and, and sending water, sending out refreshment. In a desert, if you're traveling through the desert in the ancient Near East, you can't afford to not be thinking about water. And so he's supplying them for all their needs as he draws them to himself. They'll have a pathway back from exile, and since the terrain is desert, they will have their vital needs met, all by the Lord wielding his mighty hand. In verse 14, he was sovereign over the affairs of men, so he'll clear Babylon out of the way, even using another foreign army to do it. 
Here in verses 19 to 20, he's sovereign over the workings of nature, so he'll even recraft the earth itself to bring his people near. Now, what is the point of portraying future redemption as a new exodus? And this is not the first time God will do it here in Isaiah. He'll keep doing this as the book goes on. Well, God, again, as I said at the beginning, he's training us in how to look backward for a picture of how he saves. By defeating enemy powers and exercising sovereign command over nature to provide for and to rescue his people. That is his pattern. That is how he's proven his power to save. Uh, To frame his promises to Israel like this would kind of be like the equivalent of uh, telling about some future event for our country in terms uh, of comparing with a high point in our past. Uh, Can you imagine if a, a time traveler could come visit us from the future and tell us about some great decisive moment for our country that he saw, that, that he observed in history. And he'll be struggling for words to describe it. And, and he'll say, it's as though we signed a new declaration of independence. Or it'll be like a new Gettysburg address. Or a new D-Day. Or a new I have a dream speech. And as soon as we start evoking these past events, these great points in the past, immediately we get both an idea of the shape of what the new event will be like, And the significance, the weightiness, saying, wow, it'll be that big a deal? And so it is with the Lord telling Israel about a new exodus. However, there is an important difference between old and new. So we've talked about how the new fits the old pattern. But but the second aspect of the new exodus is that the scope is enlarged. So the the first aspect was the pattern repeated. The second aspect is the scope is enlarged. As we've walked through Isaiah, especially this series this summer, starting in chapter 42, verse 10, we have heard the repeated drumbeat. Look to the past. Remember what the Lord has done already. And this is no less true in our text. If you read through verse 17, he's pounding that same drum again. Look to the past. Remember the past. Introducing himself and his credentials as the one who carried out the exodus. So we can be excused if we hit verse 18 and we... We find it a bit of a shock when he says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Forget the past. God, didn't you just get done reminding us about the past? You just spent the last two verses citing the past. Well, the context should make it clear to us. He's not telling them to absolutely forget what he's done in the past. The sense is more relative. He's telling them, as we'll see, In verse 19, the return from exile is a new thing that he's doing. We could paraphrase it like this. Take your eyes off the past things I've done, as marvelous as they were, because something even better is coming. Something greater. I love the way the prophet Jeremiah makes the same point in Jeremiah 23, verses 7 to 8 talking again about the return from exile, the same event he's prophesying. He says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but, they'll say, As the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country 
and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. Saying, we won't, we won't be talking about the Declaration of Independence anymore after this event. It will be so much greater. And as you read the Old Testament, the Exodus pops up over and over again as the high watermark of God's salvation for Israel in their history. God's mighty care and provision. And so in view of all that, what he's saying is here is not as though the past doesn't matter. But what's yet to come is so much greater. That it will form a new reference point for how we think about Yahweh's redemption. When our minds are thinking, what are we thinking about when we think about Yahweh's redemption? We're going to think about this event first. God can break the old precedents. He can set new world records. And as one commentator put it, I, I so love this, just as the sun comes up in the morning and washes out the evening stars with its brilliant light, so will this new redemption outshine the old. Now, this may lead us to ask a very natural question. How will it be greater? How will it be greater? How will it be more glorious? And the answer is that it will be both broader in scope and deeper in effect. Toward the end of the Old Testament, exiles do indeed return to Israel's land to restore Jerusalem and the temple. You can read about this in Ezra, Nehemiah. But there are lots of reasons to see that what the Lord is promising here in verses 19 to 20 is elevated beyond that. It is not just the historical and physical return to the land. It's not just what we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah and the post-exilic prophets. I'm going to give you three reasons why what God is talking about here is not the return from exile that we see at the end of the Old Testament. The first reason is that the simple return from the land that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah did not surpass the exodus. I mean, the exodus, let me think about the fireworks of the exodus, the plagues against Egypt, the miraculous sea crossing. Nothing like that happened in bringing them back to the land. He has to be talking about something greater than the exodus. The second reason why he's talking about something else is how verse 20 depicts changes to creation. A river through the desert. And by the way, that didn't happen in any time historically when the exiles are coming back from Babylon. And the desert animals rejoicing and praising God for it. So the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the desert river, waters in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And I believe if you read this along with the rest of Isaiah, these promises are like other places in Isaiah that depict the end times, the age of the Messiah from Isaiah's standpoint in terms of a radically transformed creation. Back in chapter 11, verses 6 to 9, we read about the messianic age when the wolf and the lamb dwell together and the leopard lies down beside the young goat. Later on in chapter 55, 12, the trees of the field clap their hands in joy for the Lord's redemption of his people. And I think this is one such passage that's doing a similar thing. And the third reason that Isaiah is talking about more than just the Israel's historical return is that later on, soon after this passage, in the, in the near context, Isaiah will be promising gospel graces that we know only come in the age of Christ's advent. Next week, Lord willing, in chapter 43, verse 25, he's going to promise to blot out their transgressions 
And then the next week, Lord willing, in 44, 1 to 5, we'll hear about the pouring out of the Spirit. And there he uses the terminology of waters in the wilderness. In fact, I was tempted to go and talk about the Holy Spirit here because of this river through the desert. I think it's a preview of what's coming later in chapter 44, so I'll hold off. But these are benefits that we've all come to enjoy through Christ alone. In the New Testament Gospels, often Jesus is depicted in terms of a true return from exile that God had promised so long ago through prophets like Isaiah. So, what is the point of all this for us? God is training our vision forward. We talked about how he's, he's telling us how to look back in the past, but he's training our vision forward to look ahead in hope for the surpassing glory of his future redemption. Now, we're in a different place than the first recipients of Isaiah's prophecy. We have seen the beginning of these promises fulfilled. Christ has come. He's gone to the cross for our redemption, and he has passed through the deep waters, as it were, of the grave to come up victorious in resurrection life on the other side. But we await our complete redemption, and we await that when Christ returns. So in essence, we're right in the middle of the rescue from exile, the true rescue from exile. Salvation and the end times are both an already and a not yet situation for those of us who are in Christ during this age, in between his two comings. Now, we may have neglected how radically God's redemption will transform the world. God's picture of salvation in the Bible is not being beamed up to heaven forever and a disembodied state. Rather, the whole world will get to participate in the redemption that God is working for you and me, his children. And the classic text that talks about this so beautifully is Romans 8, verses 19 to 23. It tells us, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's not just our souls, but our bodies as well. That'll be caught up in this redemption. And it's not just us as individuals. It is the whole created order. Just as our sin threw the whole creation into brokenness and cursing, so his redemption for us will mean the renewal of the entire world. Now we know that this does not mean that every individual is saved. We know even from our passage how God treats the hardened heart, his enemies. But it does mean that the whole realm of nature gets a share in the redemption that Jesus has won for us. And the redemption he'll finish when he returns. Through Christ, God is winning back every inch of his creation that sin has taken away from him. How could it be any other way? How could he surrender anything to sin? So that means that to think Christianly about our future hope is not to hate the physical world. It's not to despise the environment. It's not to long for an escape from nature or from our bodies. To think Christianly about our future hope is to long for Jesus to come back and fix everything 
that's lost and broken. Spiritual and physical. Individual and the whole world. One day animals will not be our enemies. We will not be bitten by dogs and stung by bees and worse. Nor will diseases and weather and rivers and oceans be our enemies. One day our work won't be weighed down with decay and futility. We won't struggle to scratch out a living. These are all evidences of the fallenness of creation, the way that it groans with our curse of sin. God's picture of the future is rivers flowing in the desert. The animals are high-fiving each other and singing praise songs to him. But even now, as we wait for our redemption to be complete, we find great hope in the fact that Christ has already defeated our enslaving enemies. Satan held us in the bondage of sin. And the outcome of that was death. Satan, sin, and death. These all conspired to oppress us as slaves. And thanks be to God, through the cross and through the resurrection of Christ, these are defeated enemies. They're not gone yet, but their power is broken. The grave couldn't keep Jesus down in death, and it won't be able to keep even us out in exile. Even the grave will not keep God's children from him. That is the path that he's cutting through the wilderness, even a path out of the grave itself. So given that we've seen this pattern of the old exodus and we've seen the surpassing glory of the new exodus, what response does God call forth from us? That brings us to our third section. Response to the exodus worker. What is our response to the exodus worker? Again, we'll, see, we'll divide this into two sections. The first response to the Redeemer who works the Exodus is to trust him. Our first response is to trust him. Now, even though this text is about God's works, we've been talking the whole time about what God did in the past, what he's going to do in the future. It's not even primarily about God's works. It's primarily about God. For example, did you notice verses 16 to 17 the place where he recounts his work in the Exodus, all that is framed as a very long description of God. It says in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, who... And the rest of these two verses, again, it's his resume. Remember who the Lord is by means of what he's already done in the past. It's Yahweh your God. By the way, remember what he's done for you and what that proves that he still is. He's the one promising this greater deliverance to come. That's why he references both God's past work and he calls us to see beyond it. What mattered in the past does matter. What happened in the past does matter. But he's calling us to look even beyond that. The point is that the same God who did all that stuff in the old Exodus is on the move again. And we can't begin to fathom the glory of his greater redemption. We also see this in verses 14 to 15, that God's character is in the front burner. Did you notice how in these two verses, he packs in both at the beginning and the end, two lines each of description about who God is, his personal description. He is Yahweh, the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And then again, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. It's what God will do, but it's sandwiched between two thick slices of who he is. What he says at the beginning is important. He calls himself Yahweh, their Redeemer. 
We've talked about this in past weeks, this covenant identification to be God's people and to call him our God. To be their God is a profound identification. The commentator Matthew Henry writes, If he be their God, he will be all that to them which they need. That is what, that's the the point of all this. If he be their God, he will be all to them that they need. He will be their all-sufficient supply. And if he's their God, he's saying, are you in bondage? Are you looking at being in bondage? Then I'll be your redeemer. That's what it means that he's their God. That's what it means that he's our God. He'll provide astounding graces to deliver us finally, just as he provided astounding graces to bring us to him in the first place. If what they need is a path, then they get a path. If what they need is a source of water in the wilderness, then they get a river. God, our God, will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, sometimes in astounding ways. And this doesn't, by the way, mean health and wealth promises. This is not a health and wealth gospel because sometimes health and wealth, in the limited earthly sense now, is not necessarily what we need. He will provide everything we need. God is writing to kindle the faltering faith of his people of promise. How alone will we be in exile? How exposed? How powerless? How will we ever get back? It can feel to us, brothers and sisters, that we'll never be free from sin. It can feel like sin has its tentacles wrapped around us in an inextricable way in a way that can be defeating and so discouraging. It it can feel like we'll never be free from Satan and his power to tempt us. We'll never be free from death as our bodies decay. We feel the grave reaching out to grab us, and it feels like we're still enslaved by these powers, the powers that did enslave us outside of Christ. Christian, maybe this morning what you need is a word of encouragement, a word of assurance. God cuts out a path for his people's redemption. If that's what it takes, whatever it takes, he saves. And if you're in Christ this morning, God is working spiritual life in you. And he will work spiritual life in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you right now to complete what he's begun in you. It can feel sometimes to us like all of God's saving acts are ancient history. And they're long gone in the past. We, we mine the stories of the Bible like ancient artifacts. We pull them out. We dust them off. We look at, we, we reminisce. Wasn't it nice when God was active in the world, actually doing things? In reality, we are right in the middle of it. We are right in the middle of the, the two climaxes in the main event, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We're on the, 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 the saddle and the ridgeline between those two peaks. How could we be hopeless or pessimistic about our future? How could we neglect the future redeeming acts of God? The grand finale of the fireworks show. Maybe you saw or heard some of that last night. When the last exodus will finally be complete. Sometimes God's salvation promises seem contrary to reality. They seem contrary to what our senses tell us. But they are sure and reliable To take God at his word, especially with these saving promises, is an act of bold protest against the way things currently are, the seemingly unbreakable hold that sin has on the world. 
We look not to the things that are seen, Paul tells us, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means they're passing away. They will not last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18. And part of what it means to look to the unseen things as we trust God against contrary appearances, it's like Romans 4.18 when Abraham hoped against hope that God would keep his impossible promise and grant him a child. And not only a child, but many nations coming from him. Paul commends that as a model of faith. And was it rewarded? Did God come through? We hope against hope. We look not to the things that we see, but to the things that are unseen, the promises of God, and we trust him. He is our king who cares for his dear subjects. He is the holy one, too big to fail, which means that we as his people can't fail either. He is Yahweh, the I am who I am, who is transcendent in greatness and beyond compare. And so we trust him to complete the redemption he's begun in you and me, friends. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this is not a call for you to renew your trust in the Lord yet again. This is a call for you to trust him the first time. As you've heard me say, our greatest human problem is the way that we have fallen as slaves into sin under the power of Satan, destined for death. We've turned aside from God's gracious kingly rule that he administers through his commands. We've sought our own way. And the basis of all of our rescue from bondage that we proclaim that God promises to his people is in Jesus Christ. It's he that we commend to you today. It's in him, the Bible tells us, Ephesians 1, 7, that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Christ alone is the redeemer we sang about, the one by whom God fulfills all of these great promises. So return from exile where you currently are, friend, if you're outside of Christ. Return back to God's presence in a way that will overpower even the grave. As we share in Jesus' resurrection, all of these, friend, if you're outside of Christ, they're yours for the taking if you'll only put your trust in him. We urge you to put your trust in Jesus today. So the first response is to trust the Exodus working God. The second response is to praise him. Praise the Exodus working God. This is verse 21, the last verse. The people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. And this explains who the chosen people were at the end of verse 20. The people who he gives rivers to give them to drink. My chosen people. God names them as the people he's formed. And this word is like a potter who fashions pottery. And he formed them as his people to exist for his praise. He has saved us and he will continue to save us for his praise. He extends his power and his grace and his wisdom in redemption, showing us fathomless depths of his glory. And as we experience these things, we get a glimpse of his blazing glory and we respond by worshiping him. That's the vision that the Bible paints for our existence as a people of God for the whole Christian life, as well as when we're actively worshiping, like when we gather here. The New Testament picks up on this as our identity as a praising people. 2 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's purpose. That 
you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We exist to worship God. That's why he saved us. So let's praise him. Let's pour out our hearts in awe at what he's done in the past and in hope at what he's promised to do in the future. Don't lose sight of the bounty of God's salvation for us in Christ. That's what he's reminding us of this morning. It's as essential as a path through the wilderness, as refreshing as a river through the desert. All the grace he pours out to us, and it's all to the praise of his glory. This morning, God has called us in his word to glorify him for a new and greater exodus. God saves by defeating the enemy and leading his people, even through hard places, to rest in him. In Christ's coming, in his cross, in his empty tomb, in his resurrection and his future return, he is working a redemption that far surpasses anything imagined in the past. And through faith in Jesus, we have already begun tasting of the world to come. Yet the finale still lies ahead in our future. So let's be a people of trust. Because this is who God is, who is bringing us through. And let's be a people of praise. Because he deserves worship from those he's saving. And it is our everlasting delight to render this praise to him by our lips and by our lives. Let's pray. God, we magnify your grace and your power and your wisdom in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greater redemption that you have worked for us. We have tasted and seen by faith how good you are, how abundant your streams of water and salvation are. And Father, we... Thank you for reminding us of what's to come. We pray that we would entrust our souls to you, whatever the circumstances, whatever it is that we're seeing and feeling and hearing in front of us. May the unseen things that are as certain as certain that you have promised, may that be what's real to us. May we be a people of hope in all circumstances, a people of gratitude and praise in all circumstances, even as our bodies fail. And even as we suffer all sorts of impacts of this fallen world. And we pray that the knowledge of Christ the Redeemer would spread through us and beyond us. If any here this morning don't know him, we pray that they would enjoy this return from exile by faith. And we pray that you would make us a proclaiming people who proclaim your excellencies to the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>